Hello and welcome to this episode of the Coaching Podcast from British Canoeing Awarding Body. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Coaching Podcast from British Canoeing Awarding Body. My name's Debbie Thompson. I work in the coaching department as a digital learning designer And for today's conversation, I'm joined by three people. I'm really really happy to be firstly welcoming my co-host, Helena, because Helena Russo is returning to the podcast, a guest star coming back. So Helena is the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Lead at British Canoeing. And as I said, we've been lucky enough to have her on several episodes of the podcast already. So we want to continue this EDI strand of the podcast and today we're going to be focusing on a really fascinating topic neurodiversity so uh, neurodiversity celebration week has just taken place in march so we thought this was a really good time to start talking about this and particularly uh, in relation to sport and of course paddling so Elena, if i hand over to you perhaps you could explain a little bit more about the topic and then introduce our our guests Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be returning to the podcast. And I'm also really excited to be uh, touching on this topic. I think it's something that isn't uh, wholly understood uh, generally or in the sports sector. So it's great to have this resource available for our coaches. What I'm just going to do, I think, is touch a little bit on what neurodiversity actually means and um, how, you know, how that definition exists, because it is something that some people are relatively unclear on. So neurodiversity is a rapidly evolving topic. Uh, and a definition of a person's cognitive experience of the world around them. And neurodiversity as a term is used to reference neurological differences and the variety in brain function across a population. So populations themselves are uh, neurodiverse. Um, But people who have neurodivergent conditions are those that might have conditions such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD, autism or dyspraxia. And the language that we use around neurodiversity is really, really important. And it's important to highlight that there is no normal way of thinking or learning. We all have different ways of experiencing the world around us and how we break down what happens um, in our lives. And it's often the world around us that means that people who do have neurodivergent conditions or experiences experience more challenges, more barriers to their day-to-day life, whether that's in education, work, sport. Um, and they, there are you know very varied experiences across those with neurodivergent conditions. So I'm really excited that we're going to delve a little bit deeper into what all of this means. And I am super, super excited to invite two people into the conversation today. So I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves, uh, but we have Neris joining us and we also have Kara. So thank you very much to both of you. Um, Neris, if I hand over to you, it'd be great to hear a little bit about you, your background um, and all all things canoeing. Yeah, so I'm Neris. I'm 18 years old. I'm in my last junior year of racing as a marathon and sprint flatwater kayaker. I was diagnosed with ADHD, I think, last March. So I was 17, which is quite late for someone and I started medication just after that which has been a great help. Thank you so much Neris, thank you for joining us. Uh, Cara can we come to you? We'd be great to hear a little bit more about your background. Yeah sure, thank you for having me firstly. I think it's really great that you have this coaching podcast and also that you're featuring neurodiversity as a topic. So my name is Cara McMurtry and I am a former Olympic rower so not canoeing, kayaking, but (laughs) still a water sport. And I have a diagnosis of high functioning autism. But like Neris, I I didn't 
get that diagnosis until really late in my career. So it was actually 2019 when I was diagnosed. And before that, I spent seven years on the GB growing team, five of those with a misdiagnosis of bipolar disorder because neurodiversity, especially autism in women, wasn't something that was understood. That wasn't a great experience at all. Um, I was on a lot of medication and obviously medication works when it's the right thing but it wasn't for the right thing. And um, it was a pretty traumatic experience. But the difference between that period of time on the squad and then how much I thrived when I had the right diagnosis, the right understanding was huge. And it's led me to what I'm doing now, which is trying to advocate for neurodivergent athletes and just to raise awareness and understanding that everybody's brain works differently and we could all help each other if we understood that a bit more. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Cara. Really looking forward to diving into this. Thank you. Brilliant. So we've heard a little bit about the sports that you're being involved with, but we'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that. So Neris, if we come to you first, we've heard a little bit about your kind of sporting career to date. But yeah, could you tell us a little bit more about your involvement, maybe kind of where it started off and what your experience has has been like so far? So yeah, I started kayaking at my kayak club and I've been there for six years so I've it's a really good community that's been built there and it's a really good support system I start so I started competing internationally in 2021 which was like a really big step for me mentally because coming out of covid it was a bit of a bit all over the place we didn't really know what we were getting into it was a really good experience for me but it came with quite a lot of challenges and new pressures which especially before my diagnosis of ADHD, I didn't quite know how, how to deal with. So that was such an important part of my kind of journey as a paddler in the last couple of years. But before that, it was it was difficult to understand me and how I worked. And it caused some problems with relationship with people, how my coaches coached me and like balancing the the life of a teenager, like school, social and 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 sport. So I went through a couple of years of what we thought was anxiety and depression. But clearly after that, we worked out it wasn't. It, it was a moment of clarity when we found out about my diagnosis. And as we've gone through, it's been so important for me to learn how I work and how how I can kind of get the best out of me in the mm-hmm. sport and make adaptions and learn that it's, it's OK to make an adaption for yourself mm-hmm. and kind of teach other people how to how to accommodate for that. Because as we know, there are many neurodivergent people in sport, even if they're not aware of it, even themselves. So making accommodations can even help the people who don't even know it yet I think that's really important so I did a presentation in October I think to some of the coaches in the community to just try and develop an understanding start a conversation and that was really helpful for me even if it wasn't for the coaches just to kind of get my word out there and make kind of make something happen out of it so real. So Cara, if we come to you as well, if you tell us a little bit more about your involvement in, in your sport in rowing, really high performance and what your experience has been like alongside that you've talked, touched on it a little bit. Um, but it'd be great to sort of understand what, what your highlights, what your lowlights were in that in that space. I think highlights were like very early on. So I I started rowing through an outreach project. I was really keen on a lot of sports. I found that sport was a way for me to communicate through my actions and not my words. And I come across quite eloquent a lot of the time, but that's hiding a lot of difficulties that I have with communication. That's kind of partly what attracted me to sport in the first place and especially rowing. I found it really therapeutic to be on the water, to to feel part of a team, but also to have that like solo element. So that was a really nice balance. 
And I found that I was quite good at it straight away. And I think a lot of that was to do with my neurodivergent traits. Like if I if I enjoy something, I'll put everything into it. I'm a good problem solver. I have good attention to detail, very determined. And yeah, I think a lot of that is, is down to my autism. But obviously at the time I didn't know it. I ended up making it to the Junior World Championships, getting a silver medal, got a silver medal at the under 23s, got onto the senior squad. And for a short period of time while I was still at university, I was doing well because I still had a bit of freedom to control my own time and the way I did things. I'd say the low lights, <laughs> the low lights came for five years after that, where I was obviously misdiagnosed with bipolar. And that misdiagnosis came about because I think obviously Neris um, touched upon it then when you're not understood or you don't understand yourself, you're not understood, you're not doing things the way that's ideal for you um like I was able to do when I was um more in control of my own time and my own journey you end up just almost like burning out quite a lot and I think that burnout and then the regrouping because I naturally am quite a determined person problem solver like I said from the outside it could have looked like some kind of mood disorder I guess Mm -hmm. and yeah I think I just trusted the so-called experts around me and I was just so determined to do better that I just took the advice and I probably didn't quite listen to my own true like thoughts and feelings about it and the the five years that were like not so great at all was just it was felt like five years of me just doing mental gymnastics in my head um having a thousand different rules and like an equation for each situation and that is just exhausting mm-hmm. and I didn't get the best out of myself at all and the other people around me didn't get the best out of me either and I went from someone who was like thriving and meddling to someone who was just treading water and only really just able to sort of stay on the squad sort of be final mm-hmm. quite consistently I look back and in context, I'm like, wow, that's still incredible. But at the time, it's, you know, you don't want to be sort of hamstrung and just doing well in spite of. You want to be doing well because of, which is what it was like before. And then when I got my my actual diagnosis again, like Neris, it was everything suddenly fell into place. And rather than beating myself up and constantly trying to fit myself into a box that I didn't fit in or kind of allow others to try and push me in that direction I learned the formula to my own success and I learned also how to self-advocate it gave me a bit of confidence to say draw where the line was and I think having that understanding obviously not being on the medication but having a bit of a communication plan which is really simple and a bit of therapy (laughs) directed in the right way I think any therapy I had before that was trying to change me Mm. um whereas this therapy was like okay you know, what's happened to you? Like, how do we resolve this? How do we make sense of it? And then how do we give you strategies to get the best out of yourself? That really enabled me to go from spare in 2019 to being selected for the Olympics twice because of COVID. And I got to a medal at the World Cup in 2021. But I still faced stigma and discrimination. And I think that came from a lack of understanding and awareness. So it's like, I I knew the formula to my own success but I was like okay oh, it's going to be very much potluck as to whether I can actually action this very much depends on who's around me 
Mm. And I guess I was just really tired from the 10 years. <laughs> I was tired from the 10 years of fighting. <laughs> and that's why I was like, okay, I think it's time for me to use this huge amount of knowledge in a way that's going to be most effective. And that would be to help current and future athletes, neurodivergent athletes, and do that by educating, raising awareness and educating, think probably, which is why I love the fact that you've got this podcast. I think the people that can make the most difference with the least amount of effort are coaches. And it purely comes from an awareness and understanding. And then people are intelligent. If they have that basis of knowledge, they'll be able to make those tiny little adjustments in the day that could make all the difference to a person. It might just be, you know, you see you see someone's behavior in the context of knowing that they have autism and you know that that means something different to a neurotypical person and mm-hmm. you, you think, okay, I just need to check in with them. Yeah. Or you know someone's behavior in the context of ADHD and you know that you might have to, okay, they're not interacting with this. I might need to use mm-hmm. another type of language or I need to explain this in using imagery or something like that. Yeah. I don't think neuroinclusion in sport is difficult. But it's just not well understood. It's not understood. And it starts with that understanding. Yeah. Thanks, Cara. That was amazing. And Neris, I could see you nodding along to quite a bit, a few of those pieces there. So hopefully there's a lot of bits in there. And yeah. I know a bit that you, I wanted to touch on also from kind of your involvement in sport is in your presentation that you talked about to some of the community coaches. You talked a lot about understanding yourself and being able to kind of self-manage with things like good, good sleep, rest, diet and things like that. And actually having that understanding that actually you were managing your ADHD gave you some of those tools to address that. So is there anything in there that kind of you wanted to pull out? Was there anything that that Cara said there that you wanted to kind of tap into and sort of share your own side of things yeah well I mean the majority of stuff that Cara just said crosses over to ADHD (laughs) perfectly but I think that the big thing is the little adjustments like Mm -hmm. it's not that difficult to help a little bit we don't expect everybody to just like drop everything and be like look Neris are you okay what do you want what do you want to do like that's (laughs) not that's not really what what the expectation is it's Mm -hmm it's small things you can do in an everyday training session and it's it's just little adaptions like for me and a lot of people they ADHD I really thrive on positive reinforcement that is it, it's so important and if you're not in an environment where that's happening I'll have a breakdown sometimes if it's a pressuring environment that's sometimes classically given in sport with or oh, put pressure on them and they'll perform well that doesn't work for me and I think people perceive that as a weakness or lack of mental toughness or I'm not committed or I'm not trying hard enough or I'm looking for excuses. And that, especially as someone with stereotypically low self-esteem anyway, as neurodivergent people are, that can have a massive impact on you mm-hmm. because in your most moments where you're doubting yourself, not having the reinforcement from people around you that you are doing really well and you have, you have the potential can make it so much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So by putting things in place, you can prevent a whole chain of things happening from that. And I think it's really important that like people are people know what what they can do, because I do understand that you can be told, oh, can you help me? And you don't know what coaches don't know what to do. Like they, I wouldn't expect them to know without them asking and having mm-hmm. conversations about it. And I think it's really important that coaches have conversations with the athletes because it might be a bit of an awkward conversation like you've never talked about that before but I can guarantee most people will be incredibly grateful that you've shown an interest and are willing to have a conversation about it well thank you and Cara I wanted to come to you with a question about 
I guess, you know, with um, both of you are, are performance athletes, both of you sit in a, a space that is like, as you've said, uh, Neris, very kind of high pressure. There was a kind of top two things that you think coaches should be thinking about in terms of bringing into their sessions or their practice. Is there anything that really worked for you, Cara, when you were kind of working towards an Olympic spot? Or is it just that, you know, some of those conversations grow and change through the process? Mm-hmm. Was there anything in particular that you think was is really impactful for coaches listening to this episode? episode to take away and think about it's really hard to like to speak for all (laughs) yeah speaker for all and pick a top two I just wanted to say that I so agree with what Nera said about I think in sport there's this ethos of to make a strong athlete you have to be hard and you have to challenge them mentally every day but you have to appreciate that a lot of neurodivergent people are fighting every day Mm-hmm. in the rest of their lives and actually a little bit this sounds a little bit of kindness or like mm-hmm. just encouragement can go so far and that's not being soft you're actually mm-hmm. just you're allowing that person to access parts of themselves and to push themselves harder and further so I just wanted to agree with that 100 mm-hmm. percent um that this old school style of coaching is definitely doesn't work for everyone mm-hmm. and I'll just leave it at that so that I don't so that done. I don't go too done. far down that path <laughs> and offend a lot of people but in terms of top tips for me personally it would be please explain your workings out I think in my experience a lot of coaches have got quite almost like affronted when I ask a lot of questions And in speaking to a lot of neurodivergent athletes, I've heard that this is quite a common experience. I think if you don't know about um, bottom up thinking and sort of like that kind of autistic thinking, of course, you're going to interpret those questions as as sort of like an undermining action. But if people understood just that little bit about neurodivergent brains that, like I said, that bottom up thinking you you can't just take things at face value. You can't just hold this instruction here in space. You have to know everything that comes underneath it or before it for it to stay there. That's kind of how in my head, how I picture it and how I explain it well. Like it like doesn't just stay there. You have, thing. yeah, you, I need the foundation of knowledge to make it make sense and to be able to invest. So if I'm asking a lot of questions, it's not because I'm like, trying to show you up I'm actually trying to understand so that I can really buy into it and yeah I've had a lot of had a lot of backlash for that in the past and I wish people just knew that my intentions were I actually really want to buy into what you're saying I just need to fully understand so um that's an example for me again Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting there because I'm I'm a coach not in not in paddle sport Mm. but in in other coach in other sports and I think I'd be really honoured if like somebody wanted to work with me to really understand that breakdown and you you know you mm. definitely we have a person-centred approach at British Canoeing that's part of our philosophy and having that curiosity is a really lovely part of that mm. I think sometimes of that coaching process so it's really interesting that you raised that I could see Neris nodding along furiously there <laughs> so I think there's a, a some really kind of shared elements mm. there which is fascinating yeah. and um, I would say sorry quickly no, that not at all. just saying our oh, Neris is not nodding along <laughs> and we both have different diagnoses but mm. This is why I like the term neurodivergent because it is an umbrella term and like I have a diagnosis of autism but I have a lot of ADHD traits as well and often people do have overlapping neurodivergent traits like you will find actually just 
educating yourself on neurodivergence in general will allow you to help a lot of people neurodivergent sure. and neurotypical but yeah I totally it's funny <laughs> that you say that you would feel honored but unfortunately yeah some people don't and maybe that's because you are more aware of neurodiversity and different ways of thinking and some people haven't ever been in contact with that so mm. they'll take it in a way that it would come from them so if they were asking someone a lot of questions perhaps it it would be that they're questioning them and the validity of what they're saying in the the knowledge so I because I I imagine that's where it comes from so it's just Mm -hmm. understanding that some people think differently first and foremost um brilliant anything else on your top tips is there anything else yeah because I'm yeah I'm just thinking about what was on my communication plan so my communication plan was three things it was so in the morning you know a coach might check in with their athletes to try not to ask me open-ended questions especially about my feelings and it's not that I can't understand my own feelings but it's that it takes me a bit of time and sometimes as well it would be hard for me to really access that part of my brain and communicate that in a room where we're all stretching and there's loads of noise and like there are lots of people around it does take me a bit of time to be introspective so we could come up with a strategy that's like I don't know, like a scaling system or ask me something objective rather than subjective. And then if you want to really get into the nuts and bolts of my feelings, let's have a quick meeting after training or email me some questions and I'll think about it in the evening and tell you tomorrow. But in terms of day to day, if you come up to me and you say, how are you feeling today? I'll answer 99% of the time will be I'm fine. That will be my that will be my answer straight away because it's just not a question I can access the answer to there and then Mm -hmm. so that was one thing on my communication plan the second thing was just to check that I got the right message from a briefing so if there's like a group briefing you know it could be as simple as while everyone's stretching or while we're walking out towards the boats you just say Cara what did you get from that and then I'll repeat what I think I got and then I'll either say yep nice you got it or they'll say actually you've interpreted that slightly wrong we want people to do this or think this way perfect scenario would be that a coach would say oh you know what I hadn't actually thought of it like that let me (laughs) let me incorporate what you just said into into my thinking but Mm -hmm. yeah ultimately it's just making sure that you know at the very start of the session just make sure that I'm on the same page as you Mm -hmm. because it solves a multitude of problems down the line and just know that if I've if I've interpreted something differently it's not because I'm not listening Mm-hmm. It's because I think differently, but thinking yeah. differently isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's innovative and you need to think differently to progress. And then the last thing is not necessarily um, for the coaches. It's more for like support workers in the building as a whole. But it was just to make sure that there's there's plain food available in the cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> just because when I get like really tired, yeah, I just it's one less thing to have to deal with is like really intense flavors and I don't want to have to be I already feel different and weird a lot of the times and I I don't (laughs) want to be that person that goes up to the chef and says I'm sorry you've just cooked this amazing meal and everyone's (laughs) ranting and raving about it but can I just have some plain plaster thank you (laughs) I'd rather it just be there and you know I wouldn't mind being honest about it if people had a a background understanding of neurodiversity Mm. And that I'm not just being awkward. But if people don't have that background knowledge, then I would rather just do it on the slide, keep sure, it low key, sure. 
because then I don't have to explain myself in every situation which gets mm. really really tiring I can imagine <laughs> I can imagine but yeah I think the yeah. only the only other thing I was thinking a good bit of advice and it was something that so it was I was talking to a swimmer who was a GB swimmer and he like was I think he was Adam Peaty's training partner and he does a bit of coaching now so he has like high functioning autism and I asked him like what would your best bit of advice be for a coach who say in swimming they coach like huge numbers mm. of say, like kids mm. at one time and you know I was playing devil's advocate and I was like well how do you accommodate for a neurodivergent individual in that situation and he was like okay right the best bit of advice I could give to a coach if you see like potentially discriminatory or bullying behaviors you do something about it and you say no that's no okay and it's Mm -hmm. as simple as that but like he was talking about how you know you might have a person with autism or something and like they're really enjoying themselves in the pool and because that looks a bit different or maybe they're working really hard because that looks a bit different you get those sly looks or you get sneers or you get someone calling them a name straight away you say no stop it that's not okay because ultimately like the coaches how the coach views neurodivergence how they treat neurodivergent people how they ensure that um, they're not discriminated against that like drips down mm. and everyone will follow suit so it can have like a cascade of a positive effect or negative if you're turning a blind eye yeah that says a thousand words mm. so don't turn a blind eye mm. so um, active allyship almost isn't it of you know you would manage it with any other kind of behavior wouldn't you in in yeah. that sense if it was racist language or yeah. you know homophobic abuse but actually understanding that there they may be yes okay that athlete or that individual might be acting slightly differently to the rest of the group but there's no reason for that to be an acceptable behavior mm. so yeah that sort of active allyship I think that's a, a really great point thanks Cara and to you Naris same same kind of question like what are some of the things that you've been working on with your coaches is there anything that you think has worked really well for you or that you've seen for other neurodivergent athletes that coaches can kind of be picking up and thinking about in in their sessions or when they're working with athletes I think a lot of the things are quite similar just in a slightly different way but uh, touching on the second point you said I think for me one big thing is knowing sessions beforehand if I'm on a training camp knowing what's happening on the training camp knowing where I need to be at what time all being like set out beforehand so I don't necessarily have to ask all those questions that I don't always like asking and it means that I can have that certainty and just focus on what I need to do and not get overwhelmed with all the things. And the the checking that I understand that is also really important. So what I've been working with my technique coach and it's always a conversation when we talk about our techniques. So it's always a, he says something to me, I go, oh, never thought of that. Okay, back and forth conversation. So he he's kind of verifying that I understand. So I repeat back what he what I've understood from what he said to him and he goes yep cool give it a go and nine times out of ten I do it right or close to doing it right you know it it comes across comes across properly and I think that's really important and I mean slightly opposite to what you said Cara sometimes I'm not listening so sometimes (laughs) sometimes I do need it repeated I think that's just being receptive to that so I just go oh look sorry I wasn't quite listening there can you repeat that and it's not being like why weren't you listening like Mm. you should be paying attention you should be engaged it's just being like oh yeah no no worries it's this and I think that's really important because it makes you feel 
just more comfortable because you're being accommodated for. I think the, the other thing, which is similar with my technique coach, we have a very good relationship. And for me especially, I think that's really important that you make an effort to get to know your athlete on even on like a friendship level it doesn't even have to be in a sport sense at the start it's just it's just being friendly having conversations outside of it I think that's really important because once you have that level of trust you can start having those conversations of what what you can do to help us what we can do to help you understand like it it just makes everything so much smoother and it's easier for me to receive like positive reinforcement from you that just makes that easier and create an environment that I work best I think awesome thanks Neris I thought that was really interesting the way you you were both talking about some of the maybe kind of umbrella things that might go across different people with varying uh, conditions but then also really important of the individual as well Mm. it's making sure we're not just thinking ah I understand that neurodivergent people will want x and y and not having that conversation with the person in front of you the person that you are coaching yeah agreed so Kara looking now kind of at your post-athlete career with neurodiverse sport you're supporting sports and coaches to address the lack of understanding around neurodiversity and improve other people's experience so they don't have to go through some of the things that that you went through how how are you doing that what are the steps that, that you're taking yeah, so it's like pretty much a three-pronged approach at the moment. So got the awareness raising, sort of changing perception side of it. I like to sort of call it the rewrite the narrative project. So I'm I interview athletes pretty much every week and I put the interview out on it might be a reel, it might be written, it might be a video interview, it's whatever they're comfortable with, but really talk about some of the struggles, but not in terms of, okay, why does your condition make you struggle? It's more like, why does the environment make you struggle? Because I don't, I think that it's environments that are disabling, not conditions. And then we talk about, okay, what has your condition given you that's made you a really good athlete? And I think that focus on the positive is really trying to combat the stigma that currently exists. And, you know, try and do a bit of myth busting. And at the end, I might say, you know, what is it that you want to see change in the space? Or what are your top tips for coaches? Part of the awareness raising sort of rewrite narrative project, as well as changing other people's perceptions, like a big part of it was creating role models and a Mm -hmm. sense of community. Because I think those two things, because people are advised to not talk about the neurodivergence they don't want to they're worried about stigma you end up being like little islands even within a squad but also spread out throughout different sports and you don't actually communicate with each other and the only people that you see as role models are say like Michael Phelps who's got however many Olympic medals and is seen as um, an exception to the rule you don't see all these people who are working every day and achieving and it's really important to see those people and see that you don't have to be I guess like you obviously aspire to be that amazing person but you can be like everybody else as well you can be working towards that you don't have to be there straight away so yeah so that's that's the awareness raising side of it changing perceptions and then starting to do a bit of education work so like workshops and actually potentially going to be partnering with the EIS 
to do some of that stuff. So that's really exciting. And it's really exciting that they're obviously really keen to develop their understanding in this area and to be catalyst for change. So that's really great. And then the third thing is research, because there's just not enough research in this area. And as much as I've got a lot of anecdotal evidence, because literally we're going for four months and so many athletes contact us and some of them want to talk. Some of them just want to say that what you're doing is great. Thank you so much. I'm not ready to talk because a lot of athletes are struggling still um, in the shadows yeah, as much as you've got lots of anecdotal evidence, fundamentally, we need to get the research going so that we can analyse properly. And that's only going to help us to be able to advise better. So got some research in the bank. We're going to be rolled out in the next few months with Reading University Centre um, for Autism Research and King's College. One of their departments is focusing on like ADHD and sport. So that's very exciting. And then the innovations department at the EIS. So it's all kicking off considering there was nothing. Like when I did my um, initial sort of research and literature review, everything for neurodiverse sport, like I literally couldn't find anything. I think I found three articles that were vaguely related to neurodiversity in sport. And one was French. Um, <laughs> I know. Yeah, but like, it, but it does feel like a topic that 10, even five years ago was not talked about and it's literally happening right now and it's really really exciting but yeah somebody needs to get the ball rolling and hopefully we're kind of helping to do helping to join the dots at least between the little places where it's kind of um developing so yeah those are the things that that we're doing and also after this call I'm gonna get back hold of Neris and say hey do you want to be do you want to be on that blog (laughs) definitely I'm so grateful to I genuinely I'm so grateful to the athletes who are brave enough to to speak up because a lot of athletes get advised to not talk about their neurodivergent conditions and you know although the narrative is changing it's really scary and it's it's really brave of the athletes to do that like I only Mm -hmm. felt able to do it after I retired so I just wanted to say thank you so much to all of the athletes who have reached out and who have spoken and also Neris like it's really amazing what you're doing and also to you guys because you're like hosting this so thank you oh it's been lovely lovely to have you thank you for all of your input Neris I wanted to come up to you to sort of wrap up some of this conversation I know you've talked so wonderfully about your real you know moment of clarity the transition that you've had through from kind of knowing that the the setup around you I think Cara I completely agree with you in that it's often the situation that is causing those barriers to how well we're doing um, and you're doing in that space rather than any condition but um, are there any misconceptions around new neurodiversity or neurodivergent conditions in the main or your ADHD or your experience of ADHD that you kind of want to debunk for any listeners things that might surprise people to know about your experience of ADHD I mean I think there are many firstly but um one big one for me and that has I think has been the big one in the past few years when I've been learning about myself is is the lazy misconception people especially with ADHD they assume that because of the way we work we don't care and we're too lazy and we're not committed and we you know we don't work hard enough and that is such a difficult thing to deal with and it's just not true there are so many things that we have to deal with behind the scenes and it can take 10 times as much energy for me to do the things in the day that you don't even think about 
So by the time I get to training, there are all these hurdles that I see behind me that you haven't ever experienced, which I wouldn't expect anybody to know. But it's I think it's just because people don't see it. It's not denying it's there. You see people a lot being like, well, you're fine usually. Well, you're working hard now. Why can't you do that all the time? Just because you don't see how I'm how I have to cope with things and the stuff I have to do doesn't mean it's not there. And just because you don't understand the condition doesn't mean it's not real. You wouldn't talk to like a rocket scientist and go like, oh, yeah, I don't understand the maths behind that. It must be fake. When you put it like that, it sounds so stupid. But I think really getting rid of that lazy, lazy attachment to it. Stuff like ADHD paralysis, for example, is a big part of it for me. And it's just it's just the state you get in. You just can't do anything. You, You get so overwhelmed. You get so tired. You just can't do anything. And the best way I can describe that to people is if I asked you to put your bare hand on like a hot hob. If I, I was like, I'll give you a thousand pounds if you put your hand on that hot hob. And people go, well, I can't do that. My hand, my hand's not doing it. Like something in my brain stops me from doing that because I know it will hurt me. And that is the best way I can describe ADHD paralysis is that my, something in my brain is stopping me from doing what I need to do because it's going to use up all my energy because I only have a certain amount of energy source or it's going to, it's perceived as stressful and I don't want to have to deal with that or I think I won't be good at it or all these things that are always there, like low self-esteem, all those things like manifest in that. And I think that's a really important thing to understand because that is where some of the lazy connotations come from yeah I find it so interesting that you touch on that actually because I know in your presentation to the community coaches you talked about some of your superpowers if that's the right way to use in terms of the things that are part of or a component of your ADHD actually help you to be a really great athlete you touched a little bit on like your hyper focus for example that's something that as a high performance athlete has really helped you out in terms of being able to commit really really hard to training sessions so it's interesting that you bring that up that there are so much you know we know that there's so much stigma that sits around neurodivergence still but actually you've talked so openly about how actually it's supported did you really quite widely in your in your career is there anything else that's really sort of driven you yeah. in that space for me perfectionism has always been a big thing in my mm. life sometimes it's been a bad thing sometimes it's been a good thing and I am only now learning to balance between the perfectionism and the routine and knowing what's happening to the adaptability side of it but in a sport like kayaking where technique is such an important part perfectionism is great because I can I can get really interested in why that's happening what why do I need to extend this arm out to here like I'm I'm really willing to get into that because I want to get it right and I find it really interesting and I think that's a big thing about ADHD is if I find it interesting you can't pull me away there's no question that I am totally invested mm-hmm. and I think it is something to manage that can be difficult and hold you back in other areas but it, it if you use it in the right way it can be so helpful like I have the ability to so for example I do textiles a level I have the ability to sit there for eight hours and do my work but I'm not going to do that all the time because I've learned that if I do that then I'm absolutely knocked out and I can't do anything the next day mm-hmm. so it's working with your coaches to to know where your limits are I think because some coaches if you only see my physical energy then I could keep going on forever but if we keep going until I am mentally run down you're not going to see me for however long because I've pushed it too far and in my development long term that's not going to help me so it it really helps me adapt my training plan and I need to learn to manage my energy Hmm. and just kind of listen to how I'm feeling and I need a it's good to have coaches that are able to adapt to that and 
accept when you've made a decision for yourself mm-hmm. that that's according to that so another thing it's not talked about enough is the the difficulty you have from masking your entire life yeah because okay. masking is basically when you when you change your behavior to fit more into what is societal and I was diagnosed quite late 17 is quite late for lots of people but many people go on even longer some people get diagnosed into their 50s like it's a it can go a long way and I get that being diagnosed this early is a big privilege but it, it can cause so much stress and so much trauma that you've got to got to work out after because I was I was a very quiet kid I was like pleasure to teach got good grades all those things and knowing now that all of that was was kind of fabricated by me is quite a difficult thing to come to terms with mm. and that can all good things come out of a diagnosis like in long term it's a great thing but it can be quite a difficult thing to deal with in the short term because you're working out why you did things why you were like that and you're kind of almost grieving what you were like before Mm. in an exaggerated sense because because I'm I'm not like that anymore because I'm Mm. letting myself be more be more me and work out a way that works better for me and in the long term I'll be thriving more but in the meantime it can it can be difficult because I'm not performing at school the same way as I was before so I mean I'm only doing one A level and one AS now instead of three A levels and this time last year I wouldn't have said that on a podcast because it was something that I found very difficult to admit because I used to be such such a smart kid if Mm. if you like so yeah I think it's just important to highlight that it's not it's not just the diagnosis that can make it difficult it's the it's the being undiagnosed for so long which is something that can be fixed when we bring more awareness and people get diagnosed earlier and there's better support for that so I was I would really agree with that and it's why I had trauma therapy (laughs) part of the reason why I had trauma therapy but also just as as an example for people to understand like why why we mask one of the first things that was said to me when I walked into Cabersham the national training center I remember, I remember it. I literally remember it. I walked up the stairs and some of the heavyweight men were coming down the stairs and one of them came up in my face and was like, smile. <laughs> just, because, just because like my resting face is like impassive. <laughs> um, and straight away I was like, okay, I need to mask here as well. I need to get my masking going. Yeah, it's small small things like that, and then, like I said, I was ended up being a bunch of like walking bunch of rules because I was like, must smile here, must introduce myself like this, must do this, must not be myself because Mm -hmm. it's not acceptable. But that's just a good example of lots of little things like that. That's exhausting within itself, isn't it? That's like that's another thing that contributes the mental energy isn't it of like having to think about that it takes so much energy to do something like that I think that just contributes to it just exacerbates everything that you find difficult about it when you're tired thank you so much for all of your insights and everything you've shared there it really has been incredible and thanks to everyone for listening we hope this conversation will be helpful to reflect on your coaching practice perhaps if you're working with neurodiverse paddlers or maybe even your own experience as a, as a neurodiverse coach. Thank you for listening and until next time. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. Remember to review, rate and subscribe. Bye for now.